Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello and welcome to Alpha Chat, the FT's business and economics podcast. I'm Shannon Bond. We're publishing a day early this week because it's Thanksgiving here in the U.S., and we wanted everyone who is traveling to have a great, fresh new podcast episode to accompany them on their road or plane or train trip. On the show this week, SUVs are back in fashion in the U.S. We're going to look at why and what it means as President Obama heads to Paris next week for climate talks. I'll be joined by FT journalists Ed Luce and Robert Wright. Then a $2 billion IMF bailout package is succeeding in Jamaica. U.S. Markets Editor Robin Wigglesworth and Alphaville columnist Matt Klein stop by to talk about why. Finally, we'll preview the latest episode of Alpha Chatterbox, a conversation with conservative commentator Raihan Salam. Let's get on with the show. It's Thanksgiving week in the U.S., and that means a lot of people will be hitting the road to go see their families. Uh, More and more Americans this year will be getting into SUVs, which are back on consumers' wish lists. At the same time, we're heading into the UN Paris Climate Change Conference next week. And so there's some questions about how the world's largest economy will be received there. I'm joined by Ed Luce, our chief U.S. commentator on the line from Washington, and here in our New York studio, Robert Wright, our U.S. industry correspondent, to talk about this. Hi to both of you. So, Ed, uh, you wrote a column this week where you made the argument that the increased demand for gas-guzzling SUVs that we're seeing in the U.S. might make it difficult for President Obama uh, when he goes to Paris next week uh, for the U.N. climate change conference, particularly that, you know, this might raise some questions about getting other countries to pledge to reduce their carbon emissions when Americans are happily driving around. What do you mean by that? Can you explain a bit what your argument was? Yeah, well, the, we're on course in 2015, uh, I think, to, to post more than 18 million vehicle sales, auto sales, which would be a record. The previous record was the year 2000. And a large share of those sales, a larger share than in previous years, is accounted for by um, SUVs, um, you know, the Jeep Cherokee, the Ford Explorer, etc., the bigger cars that had kind of gone out of fashion for a while during the Great Recession. People cut back on their budgets. There was a sense that peak car had been reached and that some of the sort of larger uh, sports utility vehicles, you know, were had, had, had essentially gone past their sell-by date. That's clearly not true. And the key thing that's changed is we're no longer in a great recession, um, A. And B, most importantly, I think, um, you know, oil prices, you know, have collapsed in the last 18 months. And so the prices at the pump, the U.S. consumers have fallen below three, $3 a gallon, and that's made the SUV economic again. Those who see uh, the glass half full will quite correctly point out that these SUVs aren't quite as fuel inefficient. Right, uh, you get some of these the smaller cars, right? Yes, and you've got compact SUVs as opposed to some of the more, you know, sort of monster-sized ones. So there are relatively favorable trends 
um, partly nudged by, you know, federal um, fuel efficiency goals that the Obama administration has brought in. There are relatively favorable trends there within the SUV, but the overall picture is that the U.S. consumer is moving back with cheap gas prices um, to, to bigger and less fuel efficient cars. And I think that in the context of President Obama's very difficult task in Paris next week of bringing countries like India um, into the frame and getting them to set real targets and commit to them, um, this makes it a lot more difficult if the U.S. consumer isn't really being uh, uh, being seen to adjust its its habits. Right. So it may it may look a little difficult to go there and and for us to be lecturing the rest of the world when when we don't seem to be making a concerted effort to to reduce what we're doing. I think so. I mean, there are additional difficulties here, which is the U.S. pledges of reducing, continuing to reduce its emissions because U.S. emissions have been falling. Um, are um, in contention. Um, the Obama administration says whatever comes out of Paris will not be a treaty and therefore does not need to be ratified by the Senate. And Republicans um, from Capitol Hill are sending over delegations there and sending letters to other attendees saying this is not true. It will need to be ratified by the, by the Senate and we won't ratify it. So, you know, which U.S. do you listen to? Right. Um, the polarization here over climate change is, is is moving to Paris next week. Right. Definitely a mixed message. Robert, you cover the car companies who are directly affected by this demand. But at the same time, there are government mandates, as Ed mentioned, to produce more fuel-efficient cars. Are those working? Well, I mean, I, I'm glad that Ed mentioned the point about how, how the vehicles are getting smaller. Because if you look at what's actually happening to the fuel economy of these vehicles... The picture's not quite as gloomy as you might think from the from the mix of vehicles being sold. There has been a noticeable fall off in the fuel economy of vehicles since uh, since last August, but it's only about three percent. It's got about three percent worse. So these smaller um, sports utility vehicles that are getting sold, the Ford Escape and things like that, they're not as anything like as bad as the huge sports utility vehicles mm-hmm. that were that were popular ten years ago. Or so, so I shouldn't feel so bad about like, driving a Subaru Outback. Uh, a Subaru Outback is, is, is not an absolutely terrible vehicle to drive. I think the federal fuel economy rules are broadly working in making you know, each individual class of vehicle a bit more fuel efficient. The ultimate problem here is in the US, fuel is fundamentally mispriced. It right. doesn't, the, the taxes don't even cover the cost of maintaining the roads. That, that, that's just an economic nonsense. And, and clearly the US has to do something to get away from this very heavy reliance on motor vehicles um and and just the fact that you know it's a complete there's a completely unrealistic pricing system here so there's other steps that you would advocate to reducing carbon emissions well i mean i'd say the fundamental thing is as long as you have the the price of fuel wrong for instance it becomes very difficult to fund public transit mm-hmm. um, because you can't really charge a realistic price for uh, your new light rail system say if it's going to have trouble competing with uh, unrealistically cheap cars. So my fundamental feeling here is that we are subsidizing people living in far-out suburbs which require them to drive very long distances every day. And and that's just, that's not really good for anybody. Right. Speaking of suburbs, there are some optimists who are banking on the fact that the millennials, the younger generation, uh, their habits might dampen demand, actually, for gas guzzlers um, and for cars in general, 
you know, you're seeing more people living in urban areas, popularity of, you know, bike sharing programs, popularity of car sharing programs like Uber. Ed, you're a bit skeptical about that actually making a difference. Well, I, no, I do, I do think the millennials are far more urban um, than previous generations. And I think that their, their idea of the American dream is not embodied in the car in the way that, you know, the baby boomers was. And so there, are, there is a change in taste there. And if you look at vehicle miles per head traveled, there's been a plateauing of that in the last decade. So clearly the millennials, um, you know, are, are not the sort of car freaks. They're, they're, they're the internet generation. But some of this is to do with the fact that they have delayed having families because they delayed going into the job market. And if they are in the job market, they've delayed, um, you know, um, getting, getting salary increases. So and, and buying houses, potentially, too, and, right? And most importantly, buying houses. And when it comes to having children, you would need a radical transformation in the urban um, education, in the downtown urban education environment. You'd need a lot better public schools, and you'd need a lot, a lot um, cheaper property for them to raise their families in a radically different way than they were raised by their parents and previous generations. So I, I'm skeptical that families are urbanizing. I think um, single... Um, or, or non-child couples in the millennial generation are much more urban. But I, I don't think that's going to change their demand for cars. Robert, you live in a ground zero of young urban couples with babies in Brooklyn. What do you think? This is absolutely the key question, as, as Ed says, what's going to happen when the millennials start having children? And And you hear lots of different debates about this. People say, the millennials have got this far without cars. You know, is it likely that they are going to take up cars to anything like the same extent as, as previous generations? My gut feeling would be that if they've got used to living without cars up to this point, probably at least some of them will um, will not buy them. But in some ways, I'm probably just about the world's worst person to judge this because um, I've got to age 46 without ever having owned a car. And I get my children around by public transit and and on bicycles. So, but you li- you live. I mean, we live in an unusual city where that's really reasonable. Most places, certainly in the U.S., that's not really an option. But that's my my fundamental concern, I suppose, about the mispricing of fuel is that at the moment the U.S. is incentivizing people to live in places mm-hmm. where it where it is not an option, where public transport can't work because they're not dense enough, and and, and that kind of thing. That the, the whole system is geared towards towards an unsustainable way of doing things and and that's what i would that's really what the u.s has to address in my view and unfortunately i don't see any sign that anybody's going to do that Ed, any sense in washington that that those sort of incentives might change or is that just something that's not on the table it's hard to i mean the last time the the fuel tax was raised it's 18 cents um, a gallon at the moment and that and that was imposed in 1993 and it hasn't shifted <laughs> since then, yeah. And if it, if it had gone up in line with inflation, it would be well over a dollar now. And if it were in line with, you know, the sorts of um, gas taxes you see in Europe, it would be $3 or more. So the, the price of a gallon in the UK, I believe, is something like $7 at the moment, half of which is tax. And that clearly, as Robert says, has a big um, effect on consumer behavior. Uh, it prices them into public transport. It also generates revenues to invest in public transport. I don't, um, unfortunately, see the political climate in Washington changing um, on that score anytime soon. There are other, there are other alternative measures that could be cleverly packaged that wouldn't look like a tax if the environment, um, the political environment changed a bit. So I wouldn't rule it out. I wouldn't sort of be utterly bleak here. 
Uh, but I'd be, I'd be, I'd be partially bleak. Of course, one of the things, the the fact that the gas tax hasn't gone up since 1993. One of the strange things about this is that the federal government's efforts to improve fuel economy are actually undermining the gas tax because, because not only has it not kept pace with inflation, but it's nothing like kept pace with the improving fuel economy of vehicles. So the amount of revenue per mile driven on the roads has, has plummeted. And that, that, that is obviously an economic nonsense. And that's obviously something that in a rational political system would have been addressed a long time ago. Thank you so much for joining me, both of you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Next up, we're heading to Jamaica. The Caribbean country best known for Bob Marley and track star Usain Bolt once teetered on the brink of financial collapse, but its most recent IMF bailout is showing signs of success. I brought in two of our market watchers to help find out what's going on. U.S. Markets Editor Robin Wigglesworth and Alphaville columnist Matt Klein are with me in the studio. Hi to both of you. Hi, Sam. Hi, Sam. So, Robin, um, let's start off with you. You've done some extensive reporting on Jamaica, its economy, as well as other Caribbean economies in the past couple of years. What's going on in Jamaica? What has been going on in Jamaica? Well, I'm a sovereign debt restructuring nut, and there's been a lot of that in the Caribbean. Obviously, it's not the worst place in the world to visit either. So a few years ago, <laughs> I did a little sort of mini tour there. I worked hard, I promise. But I also spent sort of a, a few days in Jamaica and Kingston and talked to lots of people there. The IMF program had just been signed. But it was what you know, even the IMF called as a high-risk program. And they did it together with the Inter-American Development Bank and the World Bank. And normally they're the kind of the soft, nice people. But they thought this program was a no-hope program. The IMF actually had to stump up more money because the others didn't want to do it because they thought this one would fail like so many other programs before it. So what did it look like on the ground in Jamaica when you were there? Well, it's a mess. It's an economy that basically hasn't been growing for 40 years. There's tons of corruption. There's an enormous amount of crime. And Jamaica has a murder rate that's worse than Mexico's. It's just a country that really has a lot of problems. And this has been building up for a long time. They've actually restructured their debt several times. They've done it twice in just the past five years now. The problem is a lot of the debt is actually from the local banks. So lots of Jamaicans send money home. And the banks then lend it to the government. So there's, you can't really take a chainsaw to it because right. basically you call the financial system to implode. So they did this thing. They went to the IMF said, look, we're really going to shape up now. And please give us some more money and we'll, we'll really do it this time. And obviously people are skeptical, but we'll see. So what does this, the, the most recent program look like? What does it entail and why does it seem like it might be working? Well, one of the in- interesting things with this program was because basically the amount of credibility that Jamaican government or the authorities had was pretty much close to zero. I mean, they've failed so many programs beforehand. So the IMF wanted lots of what they call prize. They wanted that, like, before we give you a cent, you have to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all a long list of things. And among the other things they had to do, they had to run a primary surplus or a budget surplus before the debt servicing of 7.5% of GDP, which is, I think, the technical term is hard as hell or draconian. <laughs> and how tough. does that compare to, to other countries? I, so there aren't that many countries. Basically <laughs> unprecedented, I think. Yeah, I think so. I can't imagine, yeah, I can't I, think of a country that's run a sustained primary surplus of 7.5% for that for the foreseeable right. future. These are the kinds of things that need to revolutions in other places. Mm. So uh, we're talking about this now because the IMF has just completed its 10th program review. Matt, what did they, what did they find out? Uh, they found that it was actually things were working uh, relatively well. The economy was growing a little bit. 
Um, they reduced the primary surplus target, or at least they're, they're planning to reduce it, I believe it is correct, from 7.5% of GDP to 7% of GDP, which is still extraordinary, but it's very different uh, from many other IMF programs that have been undertaken in the past, say, 20 or 30 years, which is partly why you know this is such an interesting case that you look at the IMF's experience in Europe with the Euro crisis uh, and also with Ukraine, you look at it uh, with the Asian financial crisis. These are all situations where the IMF either basically failed or... At best, they sort of made a situation worse, and the country ended up okay afterwards. But in the Asian crisis, for example, these countries they they look at it now. And they say it was they call it the IMF crisis, the IMF recession, because the IMF essentially gave them a recommend, policy recommendation that was not helpful. And in Jamaica, interestingly, seems to be working. Yeah, I was fascinated. I mean, in many ways, Jamaica only got this program partly because it would have looked awful for the IMF to be signing all these stupid bailout agreements in Europe, but then letting a developing country, a non-white, non-European country down the drain. I mean, right. that's what Jamaica was facing. They were really right. up the creek. And now, frankly, the government has done an incredible job. The IMF has also helped a lot. They've sent lots of people there, lots of people working on the ground. They've been a little bit lucky with oil prices mm-hmm. falling. Jamaica's a big oil uh, importer. So th- there's been a bit of luck, but an awful lot of actual credibility that the government has restored. And Jamaican governments have never been known for their financial and their fiscal discipline. But they've done a really good job. And the thing is, we've got an election coming up next year. And what's happened before every single election in Jamaica is people just open the fiscal spigots. Right. That, you know, the budget discipline just gets shot to hell. And then this time they've actually shown discipline. And that's great. So does it sound like, I mean, Jamaicans sort of, regular Jamaicans, you know, on the street or would be feeling changes and improvements uh, through this process? I think there is a sense of growing sense of optimism. When I went there two years ago, one of the reasons that I actually, oddly enough, was more optimistic on Jamaica than many of the other Caribbean countries, Jamaica had that sense that it hit bottom. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was just maximum, dis- it was almost like a depression. And even random homeless people on the street knew about the IMF and basically said, yeah, we need to do this. So it was this broad acceptance that you know we ha- something had to be done. And... Now, this is only starting to filter through, but growth is returning. It's not great, but it's there. Unemployment is heading down. Inflation is coming down. And I think there is this sense that if they get through one more government, the elections next year, one more government, and they keep disciplined, then you know Jamaica could maybe shed its sort of perennial basket case image. Right. I mean, Matt, you touched on this a bit, but I mean, essentially how, how this compares sort of in the history of other similar IMF bailout programs. So probably the most notable contrast would be to Greece, where the IMF went in with a set of forecasts that internally there may have been some disagreement about how realistic they were. But you know, the decisions ultimately are made by the shareholders, which are political actors and not the staff economists. So, But the official forecasts were basically that Greece would be able to cut spending tremendously and re- return to growth very quickly with a minimal uh, write-down in debt that was owed uh, to the private sector, which turned out to be very, very wrong. And they actually had to go back uh, a couple of years later, and the chief economist wrote this basically um, apology about how the models they used based for the impact of spending cuts on growth were completely wrong, and how gr- not just Greece, but Greece was a particular uh, example of how they just their, their forecasts were completely off by like a factor of three in terms of the impact on the economy. I mean, that's one particular example. I mean, Ukraine is another one that's going on right now where, I mean, admittedly, again, some of it's not the IMS fault that Ukraine, you know, they've been invaded by. Right, they are uh, at war. Right. Yeah. But still, it's, it's a situation where the, the IMF has had to keep 
sort of revisiting the forecast they've had and 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 for little reasons they yeah. just they bent over backwards for ukraine and right. entered into a really stupid program that its own staff didn't really believe in right yeah so this seems like a, a hopeful moment potentially genuinely i mean it would be a, a great thing for jamaica which mm-hmm. has had a frankly bad four decades mm-hmm. it would be a huge boost for the imf which frankly really needs it after a very long run of very bad programs and the last vaguely successful one major one i can think of is of turkey in the early noughties when they came in lots of people thought turkey was toast as well but the turkish government used the crisis to make some important changes and you know the IMF lent money they avoided debt restructuring and Turkey kind of set itself up for the sort of Erdogan era of economic growth which has propelled him for well 15 years now close to and you know for the Caribbean you know there's lots of other countries aren't as big as Jamaica something like Barbados they can look to what Jamaica did and they're not as bad shape as Jamaica but they can take heart that you know a bit of austerity, but some clever reforms and a bit of discipline can actually turn things around. And I think that's a hopeful message. Great. Well, thanks to Robin. We've linked to a slew of IMF reports and past FT stories on Jamaica. You can find all of those links on our show notes for this week's episode at ft.com slash alpha chat. Thanks, Robin. And thanks, Matt. Thank you. Thank you. Before he headed off on sabbatical, Cardiff sat down with conservative economic and political commentator Raihan Salam to discuss everything from immigration to trade policy, the government response to the financial crisis, and more. You can listen to the full episode now on Alpha Chatterbox, our long-form economics podcast. But in the meantime, here's an excerpt. So first of all, uh, thanks for doing this. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, thanks for having me. You, you don't know this yet, but you're not just here to talk about conservative economic policy. You're also here in part because I was raised Catholic and have have like a kind of overdeveloped sense of guilt. Okay, we had Joe Stiglitz in here to talk about what a modern, data-driven, vigorously argued progressive policy, economic policy would look like. Uh, you're here to give us what a modern, data-driven, vigorously argued conservative economic policy would look like, which doesn't mean that you have to speak for all conservatives any more than Stiglitz speaks for all liberals. But here's where I guess I want to start. You have this new article out about rethinking American conservatism. It's a kind of follow-up to your book with Ross Duthat from from seven years ago called Grand New Party. And you talk about reform conservatism, right, which is a kind of a mantra that you and a few other conservatives have adopted. And certainly there are a lot of tactical differences between you guys and what you might call the establishment conservatives or the political conservatives of the day. I guess my first question is, are there any big philosophical differences? And if so, how would you define those? So to some degree, you could say that reform conservatives are united by a method, uh, just a, a way of thinking about public policy issues more than their united by some kind of shared philosophical sensibility. I'd say that there are people with very different sensibilities who have kind of coalesced around a set of answers, a set of approaches to public institutions and public affairs. Um, And I think that is broadly true of conservatism too, you know, in general. Uh, You know, there are some conservatives who are you know, deeply motivated by uh, concern about defending religious liberty uh, and civil society. There are others who come at it from a more consequentialist angle, let's say. So I'd say that there is actually a fair bit of diversity. But the, uh, you know, the area where you have some consensus is over this idea of, you know, look, we have a mixed economy in the society. 
we have these uh, what you might call social market institutions. Uh, we have labor market regulations in place. Uh, we have uh, old age social insurance programs. These are baked in. So how do we think about them? How do we help them uh, help design them in ways uh, that allow us to achieve our broader social goals? including upward mobility for a larger swath of the population, uh, a growing economy, and much else. Uh, but you know, the basic idea is that we try to steer clear uh, of a purely abstract, purely ideological conversation uh, about, well, we're anti-government. Because the thing is that, okay, fair enough, you're anti-government, but of course, you know, you're not going to get rid of Social Security, right? You're not going to get rid of Medicare, right? Because you either affirmatively believe that they're very good things or you believe that as a political matter, they're here, they're baked in. So the question is, you know, you can't just say, well, I'm anti-government except for Social Security and Medicare and public schools and all of these other things that are just firmly entrenched. You actually have to think about how they work. Sure. And I guess uh, when I think of conservatism, right, when I think of traditional conservatism, the immediate association is with uh, free markets, right? free trade, uh, a small-ish small safety net, right? Uh, one of the innovations of your book, innovation might be the wrong word, but one of the emphases of your book was that actually the Republican Party and conservatives in general should embrace a more populist approach, that the family matters, that people, that middle-income people should get a lot more attention. That still seems to be a big part of your emphasis now, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So, I'd say that that is one of the core things. To some extent, it's a political argument. To some extent, we're arguing that, you know, when you look at the Republican coalition, it really rests very heavily on middle-income voters. I mean, as any successful political coalition would have to uh, in a society like ours. Uh, But there is this lingering perception, uh, a perception with some justification, that the Republican Party is not much of a defender of middle-class economic interests. The kinds of economic policy prescriptions that lots of people in the right-of-center world tend to fixate on uh, tend to be policies that are about growing the whole pie without much regard to, you know, who gets what. And I think that that's, you know, fundamentally fair enough. But the problem is that that creates this vulnerability, particularly in a context in which, you know, lots of people who are lower middle class, working class, et cetera, feel as though they haven't been full participants in rising prosperity. Because that, and here's a really, really important idea, I think, that threatens the legitimacy of the market economy. And when the legitimacy of the market economy erodes, then you have a danger that you will have uh, you know, far more threatening policy prescriptions that are going to come down the pike. We've seen this in other societies. One could argue that we've seen flashes of this um, in the United States. Amelia Mahasik is away this week, but we'll have her back next week for an extra-long follow-up. Before we head out, here's what our guests are reading. Ed, I'll start with you. Um, I'm reading, um, or have just read, JFK's Forgotten Crisis by Bruce Rydell, which I actually also reviewed in the FT. And it's one of these very rare pieces of history nowadays that's very, very elegantly, nicely written. It's a short book, 180 pages, and that it also contains new news. And the the essential story of this is that at the same time as the Cuba Missile Crisis was happening in 1962, uh, John F. Kennedy was faced with an equally sort of titanic crisis, the other side of the world, with China's invasion of India. And all sorts of papers um, around that time have been released in the last few years. And Bruce Rydell, who's a former 
National Security Advisor to President Obama and President Clinton and a, and a CIA officer, former CIA officer, beautifully unravels um, and pours over um, the, the, this new material to show how JFK uh, was dealing with two, as I say, titanic global crises simultaneously. Simultaneously, and it's a beautifully written book, and it's, a, I think, very relevant to today, because we think of, you know, we're we're all um, um, temporal na- narcissists. We all believe that today is always more important and more urgent and more. But actually, it's hard to think of a president at any one time facing such huge challenges simultaneously as JFK did in 1962. And I think it's worth. It just puts things in perspective today that that you can. You can walk and chew gum. He handled both pretty brilliantly. And Rydell's book is a, is a wonderful read. Robert, what are you reading this week? Well, I really enjoyed Unfollow by Adrian Chen in The New Yorker. It's the extraordinary story of Megan Phelps Roper of the Westboro Baptist Church, which is famous for picketing soldiers' funerals and, and so on. And what was great about it was it was just an explanation of how the church's effort to reach out to people on Twitter by giving her a Twitter account kind of led her to explore the world outside. And what was great about it is one of the things that really started drawing her out of that rather narrow, rather inward-looking, rather hateful little Christian group was that people engaged with her when she, as we would say nowadays, trolled people, when she was when she was saying really hateful things on Twitter, people were saying, people were um, taking her on and saying, "This is, you know, here's why I think you're wrong," and and eventually, and this is I think a good listen, a good lesson for all of us who use Twitter and other social media platforms. It's, it did actually make a difference, and and, and this in a, in a way led her to going out and meeting some of the people that she'd come across on Twitter, and and it made a real difference to her life, and and. It just struck me as a rather beautiful story of what these really powerful social media platforms can do. We complain about them a lot, but um, this is a this is a great example of how how somebody's life was changed. Uh, I I think um, probably for the better by by having access to this this simple tool that we take for granted. That was a great piece. I really liked it too. Robin. Well, I, I have revisited it recently, actually, for some other reason, but the book that I think is very current and is always current is uh, one by Stephen Pinker called The Better Angels of Our Nature. I think it's a book that everybody should read, especially when things um, look a little bit bleak, as they did in the wake of the Paris attacks. But Stephen Pinker's argument is that the world, despite what we may think, is actually getting more peaceful, more liberal, uh, and wealthier every day almost and there are the old blips of, of terror but in general the future looks a lot brighter than we sometimes think it does and I think that's an important thing to remember Good dose of optimism mm. That? Uh, I'm not sure mine will be inspirational but there was a very interesting interview that uh, economist Tyler Cowen did with uh, hedge fund manager Cliff Asinus earlier this week and the whole both video and transcript are available on Medium and it's a very interesting discussion of how um, investing works and, and portfolio management. And I think people would enjoy it, listening to it or reading it. This week, I'm recommending a piece in the New York Times Magazine called The Doomsday Scam by C.J. Chivers. Um, and it's the story of this substance called red mercury that bomb makers all over the world for decades have been trying to get their hands on. Most recently, he talks about a case where ISIS is trying to get it. 
But actually, it appears that this substance doesn't really exist. It's kind of been this hoax, but it's taken in even the U.S. government at one point. And it's just a really fascinating tale of sort of this urban legend that has grown over decades and kind of where it came from and why it's been so persistent. Really, a really fun read. That's all the time we have today. Thanks so much for listening. You can go to ft.com slash alpha chat for our show notes, links, and other goodies. Uh, we'd also love to hear your recommendations. Give us a call and leave a voicemail, 917-551-5012. Email us at alphachat at ft.com or send us a voice memo to that same address. Or tweet me. I'm at Shannon Parai, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-P-A-R-E-I-L. This week, I'm especially thankful for Amy Keene, who produces our show. And happy Thanksgiving to all of our listeners in the U.S.